Okay, hello and welcome to The Cine Skinny. It's the podcast from the team behind The Skinny magazine. We're talking about the films. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Jamie Dunn. Hello. Lewis Robertson. Hello. And Annie heap Hi. We are at EHFM in Summer Hall. Our office used to be in Summer Hall. We put on film screenings at Summer Hall. And now we're doing the pod. What a lovely moment. Uh, yeah, thanks to Jamie and the station for having us. You can listen to EHFM live online all the time at ehfm.live. And they have like a full archive of shows on Mixcloud as well. So lovely chaps. Good stuff. There's lovely vibey lighting on. I'm having a great time. Uh, and another thing to say before we get started is thanks to everyone who came to the matinee screenings we did with Mubi. We have another couple of Mubi screenings coming up. Medusa Deluxe on the 6th and 7th of June <laughs> Good Lord. in Glasgow and Edinburgh. This is the second time I've recorded this intro. It's better than it was, but still not great. <laughs> Jamie, please help. What have you been watching? Well, I have been watching Mubi. Not because uh, we're in any way forced to, but I just enjoy <laughs> the platform. Um, uh, and they actually Sounds like something that someone who was forced to would say. What yeah. can I say? I just love the content. <laughs> well, they have a really cool retrospective right now of Christophe Honor, who's this um, really good French filmmaker. He's a household name in France. Um, he's at Cannes every year, but he just hasn't broken through in the UK, I don't think. What's oh, that? no. What's happened? Uh, have you lost it again? Yeah, Lewis oh my did God. something. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie, start again. Uh, I promise ja- I won't interrupt Jamie, this Jamie, I can't. I can't listen to <laughs> this bad, that time. That, that's bad banter again. <laughs> uh, Christophe Honor, never really broken through in England or English language uh, countries. Very big in France. Always big at Cannes. He's got a season on movie. You watched a particularly good film with boy in the title. Take yes. it from there. Uh, so, yeah, I watched his new film called Winter Boy, um, which is very good. Um, it's, it's a kind of come-of-age film in the way that the French do come-of-age films. So it's very moody very sexy there's a lot of smoking there's a lot of walking around museums and talking about art and literature so it follows this kid who um he's 17 his dad has just died in this kind of car accident and it kind of sends him into a spiral he lives in this little village with his mum julie binoche who's just amazing as usual um and he sort of like has to escape he goes to paris where his brother lives and he just goes in this kind of journey of um you know hookups and moodiness he's walking around town not knowing what's going on with his life but it's just kind of, it's just got such a great vibe it's like a kind of real kind of wintry film um it's shot in 16 millimeter and paris looks amazing in winter and it's it's you know it reminds me of films like the ice storm and ordinary people and it's just got a kind of really kind of sad existential kind of french vibe um which is which is my cup of tea so uh if that sounds like your cup of tea winter boy it's on movie. It's on movie. It's ideal for the summer we're about to have. <laughs> um, and also we will be back with French films in a bit. Lewis, do you have anything for me? Uh, I've not been watching a lot, but one hungover Sunday afternoon, I did binge Defunct Land, which for people who don't know, that's a, a web series of of like video essays that explore weird amusement parks or amusement park attractions that like got shut down or have weird histories. Um, stuff like the Garfield Tunnel of Love. But like uh, the channel creator, Kevin Perger, has some feature-length documentaries on the channel. There's one that's an hour and a half long video essay explaining the history and economics of Disneyland's FastPass system. And it's like, I'm not a Disneyland person. I don't think I've, I've ever like even used FastPass, but he's just so funny and charming and breaks down information in such palatable ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, he has one that's like a, a deep dive into the mystery of who wrote the Disney Channel theme music, which again, a channel that I didn't watch growing up, but it's like he just puts so much effort into it. it. It's like really cinematically developed. It's like, I think of all the YouTube videos I can think of, it's probably the one that's like the strongest case for YouTube as a film. Um, 
And that's kind of what it is. It's like by looking at this composer whose work might be overlooked because it's a jingle for a kid's TV channel. He's actually talking about how sometimes like he feels his work is overlooked because he uploads it to the internet. He's a content creator rather than a filmmaker. So really interesting. If you've not checked out Defunct Land, really entertaining, really funny, really good for hangovers. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Anna, you got anything? Uh, I went to a screening of The Mark of Zorro, like the silent film one, at like this community center in Kostorfin with my mother. Um, and everyone there was so old and so white. And I thought we might be hate crimed, but actually it was fine. <laughs> but it was really cute because they like did a kind of, they projected it onto the wall. And then they had um, the organ from the old Astoria cinema in, there used to be a cinema in Kostorfin and it's now in Iceland. Um, they had the organ from there and then there was this organist that was like doing like a live kind of score to the silent film. It was very cute. Um, it was very like nice, nice little like mother daughter time. Um, and like it was a very charming film. Fun fact, the 1997 Zorro was like my sexual awakening. <laughs> so I have like a really. <laughs> I, th- I, you mentioned I think that's <laughs> yeah. the third or fourth time you've brought that up. Is it just as sexy in the silent film era? <laughs> No, it's not as good, but no. it was good. It was still very funny. Um, <laughs> who, who plays Zorro? Is it? Is it Douglas Fairbanks? Ah. And he's just not as hot. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's only so <laughs> what can you do? But it was like it was very cute. It was e- nice. Excellent. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. Right. That's that. Right. So we've covered sexual awakenings, <laughs> YouTube videos, and France. Cool. We can move on. Full time. It is as mentioned earlier, as trailed earlier, French. So. Julie uh, is played by Laura Calamay. She is the head chambermaid at a five-star Parisian hotel. She, uh, every morning she leaves her two kids back in her kind of village out in the sort of like beyond suburbs to go on this daily commute. She has a job interview for another job. There is an ongoing transport strike in France. There is strife. Drama ensues. This one played at Edinburgh Film Festival and also I believe at the French Film Festival, possibly. And yes. Venice, I think. And Venice. It's been, around, it's been like floating around in the ether or later uh, <laughs> for a while. Um, the thing that people keep saying is it's a Ken Loach subject matter shot like a thriller. So Jamie, I can see that you have written down almost that exact thing in the notes. Please elaborate. Thanks for stealing my lines. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's not We're like you say. It, it's not an original thought. Basically, everyone has said some version of this. My 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 version is going to be it's a Ken Loach film, but made by Luke Besson, um, because it's about a woman just going about her daily life, but. It's shot and edited in this really frenetic way um, and it's got this amazing kind of pulse-pounding score um, that makes it feel like when she's running in the film, it feels like an assassin's after her, but actually she's just running for the train because it's basically just about this woman's stressful like week. Um, uh, so yes, it's like... Uh, and that's what makes it stressful is because it's, it's, it's familiar, you know? Like, the thing is, when you watch a James Bond film, you know, when he's like diffusing a bomb in Goldfinger or Tom Cruise is jumping at a plane in Mission Impossible. There's a kind of, you know, it's tense, but you know, you know, they're going to be fine. You you know, it's that you can't really relate to those situations, but you have been running late for a train. You have had an interview that's going terribly. You have had to juggle about 20 things um, because that's the kind of life you live where you're like juggling 20 jobs. So, this is what it's just it's just basically a film about the, the horrible gig economy we live in and <laughs> capitalism and how life is really hard so this woman her problem um uh, julie her problems are just mundane you know she's got a hellish commute there's a transit strike um she has an elderly neighbor who is getting really pissed off because she keeps dumping her kids with her um she's got a massive job interview coming up 
and you can just identify with these struggles you know these are familiar things and it's just shot and made to feel like a thriller and it really grips you from the, the off you know so it's a thriller but the the villain of the piece is capitalism and our our kind of hellish daily life so yeah i i had a lot of fun with this i feel like it's a film that quite feels quite deliberate felt to me anyway quite deliberately like non-didactic she doesn't suddenly have this like epiphany and then develop class consciousness and then like unionize the chambermaids and then burn down the hotel but she is very clearly overwhelmed by the society and the structures to the point where it doesn't seem like there's anything that can really be done i have written down that uh, fans of visual metaphor may giggle a bit at the kind of penultimate or like final scene uh it's a massive spoiler to say what it is but there is a asterisk asterisk visual metaphor which is very well employed it is well employed but you might have a little chuckle at it but yeah the politics of it anahe is something that like people have kind of talked about in various different ways it's quite an interesting way that it presents this kind of like the strike as being in the background but in a way that it would be portrayed differently in a different film yeah i think yeah the politics of it is really interesting like you say it's not didactic and i know jamie you kind of thought that it doesn't quite like tie in her struggles with the struggles of the people on strike which i think is true like it doesn't do that in an explicit way um but i don't think it's ever a film where the striking workers are the villains like capitalism is definitely the villain like you say um and i actually thought it was really interesting the way that it kind of contextualizes it within like a broader kind of like hellscape of labor um there was this one shot particularly where um she's either hitched a ride with someone or she's on like one of the only fucking trains that's working or something and she like she's in like deep shit like her job is like going like you know it's people are mad at her she might be fired she has a little interview she can't get anywhere blah 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 um and she like looks out to kind of the distant city and there's these like plumes of like smoke um that are rising which i presume is because the french keep burning cars which like fucking good for them um, and it almost reminded me of something that you would see in like a tenor that came out last year or like, like, do you know what I mean? Like it felt very like, like this is a hellscape that this woman is living in and these strikes and her struggle are the same struggle. And it was like a very kind of brief visual metaphor. And the film definitely doesn't like tie it in explicitly, but it did feel like it was kind of putting it all within a broader context, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I also thought she was, great there's obviously a lot to be said about her performance which is like really fucking good um but i was just really struck by like her passivity like there'd be these scenes where like someone would be calling her about the interview or someone would be calling her about the job and you could just see that she's like passive like she has nothing to say apart from okay amazing super yeah that sounds good okay yes i'll be there blah, blah, blah. and she just is having like people and these bosses like acting on her and that really is like to a certain extent what capitalism is right like it deprives you of agency it's also her kids as well because like she's yeah. she's going to this yeah. these elaborate um efforts to, to like throw a kid's party and it's like yeah. come on if you're that busy just forget about the kids party who cares about the bloody bouncy castle it very much like encourages you to sort of get in the boat of that very dehumanizing aspect of capitalism mm. where the, her children are less than characters and more just obstacles that she has to get over like yeah. um hers is really the only performance and like you say it's very like singular it's very mm. you know it sort of really lacks autonomy we're not seeing confrontations with police in the middle of riots or whatever this is from the perspective of someone who can't even afford to fight for their rights because the whole point of the film is that time is a currency so you know 
she her performance is the one that makes it feel like an action film. She's in the middle of this battle to just get to the train doors before they close and doesn't even have a chance to, you know, characterize out of that. But even worse than those moments when you're like on the edge of your seat hoping she'll make it are the moments when there's no transport available whatsoever and you're just stuck with her for like this aching second where you see her just like doing this thousand yard stare, this one particular shot where she must be doing like a million calculations in her head at once, Mm -hmm. trying to work out just what to do next and where to go. It's really impressive. It's a hard thing to pull off creating a world where there's this barrier to empathizing with others because nobody's coming to help us. But the lead performance, Laurie Calamy, I think it is. Laura Calamy. Excuse me. <laughs> sorry. sorry. To be <laughs> but yeah, it's incredible. It's very much like um, this is an amazing film. Capitalism is a nightmare that we're never going to wake up from. It's an amazing film. I love it. Yeah, it's yeah. One, of the, one of those films where the, the camera never leaves her side. It's one of the, you know, it's like she's in every single scene, but the, but she's like driving the film. Like it, the camera just does not leave her her sh- shoulders. But also about her kids, like part of that is like part of the. It's an interesting film because she she never kind of quite clicks. Why am I doing this? There's never a moment where she thinks, "What is the point of this?" Because she does the things where like she's living in this village because she she wants her kids to have a better life, but then she spends no time with her kids because she has to do this, uh, you know, these menial jobs to pay for them. And her idea is, if I get a better job, it'll be better. But the better job is also going to mean more 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 hours, you know. Like mm-hmm. so, it's like there's a never ending struggle. Um, so so it's like a. In a way, it's a really grim film. It's like it's like it's like almost. It doesn't suggest any um, respite for this woman. It's it's interesting that you point out that the camera never really leaves her side. Because when I first heard about it, I thought of Boiling Point with Stephen Graham, where he's like mm. a five star chef. Except the main difference, other than this taking place over a week and Boiling Point being an all in one shot film, is that instead of showing the crushing pressure of having to work at the very top, this is about the crushing pressure of having to work at the very bottom. So I think those two films paint this incredibly damning portrait of capitalism where you can't win either way and it just it's all terrible mm. yeah it's like all in the kind of mundane terror of just like seeing the same stuff every day on your way to and from work leaving in the dark going home in the dark yeah, yeah. fucking hell yeah it's very kinetic it's very energetic it's actually quite stressful so it's maybe not the most fun film in the world but it is good it is good it is worth watching it also is a really good joke um about a scottish musician who oh uh, that's so funny <laughs> yeah who, who does a who does like a kind of dirty protest in one of the hotel rooms that's, she works in this kind of five-star hotel um and this uh, guest is like in the penthouse and like made a mess of the bathroom and i just wonder who do you think uh the famous scottish musician is meant to be oh is, my god is this a are you a, playing defamation bingo <laughs> <laughs> It seems very specific to see a Scottish uh, rock star. So I was just I didn't think it was specific to the rock star. I thought it was specific to Scotland. I thought <laughs> the country was being called out rather than a particular person. I mean, that's harsh. Either way, if you've got if you've got suggestions on which Scottish rock star you think would be most likely to defile a five star Parisian hotel room, please don't tell us. <laughs> Keep those to yourself. So uh, full time is out in UK cinemas from next Friday, I believe, twenty fifth. 26th of May. So that's full time. Check it out. It's good, but stressful. Oh my god, it's next Friday, the 26th of May. It is. Ugh, there we god. go. It's going to be June soon. And then it'll be July. Fuck off. And then August. <laughs> no. <laughs> Local hero, Scottish classic, Bill Forsyth. I'll explain the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Solid intro. So, local hero is about. Uh, I'll cut this bit as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Right. right. Let me see if I can get this this time. 
Local Hero is back. It's its 40th anniversary this year, so it's getting a re-release and it is playing in cinemas across the UK and Scotland in particular from this Friday. So in Local Hero, Mac, who's played by Peter Rygart, is sent by his Texan oil company to northwest Scotland <laughs> to buy up a seaside village to turn... <laughs> I bet no one can hear this and we just sound insane. No, I think they definitely could you hear think? that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Local Heroes back. 40th anniversary. <laughs> Bill Forsyth Classic. Mac is sent by his Texan oil company to Northwest Scotland to buy up a seaside village for a new oil refinery. He gets to Forest, not a real place. He meets Oldson, Peter Capaldi. They go off to the village, but they soon find out that it isn't that straightforward to buy up a small Scottish village and turn it into an oil refinery. Uh, there's like a 4K restoration that's playing at the Cameo Dominion and GFT from the 19th of May. Local Hero is very good. It's very important in the history of Scottish film. Jamie, you know a lot about the history of Scottish film. Hit me. Give me the knowledge. What's the situation? It, it was very important, I think, in the history of Scottish film. And Thank it's a, you. And it's a, a big kind of step forward for Bill Forsyth because he his first two films had been these kind of really low-budget comedies about um, teens uh, that were kind of made with like a community group um, in Glasgow. Um, so that was... Um, that sinking feeling in Gregory's Girl. But this one was a big step up. It was produced by David Putnam, who was at the time kind of UK, the UK's kind of star um, producer. He just made Chariots of Fire, won the Oscar. Um, it had Warner Brothers behind it. Um, it had Burt Lancaster, this kind of legendary uh, Hollywood actor in it. Um, and yeah, under that pressure, I think he absolutely knocks it out of the park. Um, you know, so but what I love about the film is despite it being this kind of studio film, it feels completely like a Bill Forsyth film. So it follows his kind of gentle rhythms. It's running through with this kind of slightly absurdist sense of humour. The performances are kind of really eccentric, but kind of utterly charming. And it's just got this kind of really bittersweet kind of flavour that is really unique to Forsyth, I think. Um, and, and I think makes him one of the um, really great UK um, filmmakers. Um, so it's a kind of... It's kind of bait and switch movie because it it set, it set up this expectation um, of this kind of familiar setup of this city slicker capitalist who's going to come to town and he's going to swindle these kind of country bumpkins um, out of their homeland. And of course, the cliche would be that the townspeople don't want this to happen. They want to save their homes. They're going to stop this buyout. Um, but it turns out the villagers are even more avaristic than the oil company. <laughs> That's the kind of the, the kind of big joke in the film is like they're very happy to sell up. They want to make tons of cash. They want to sell up and go to Edinburgh or whatever. Um, so they're trying to convince Mac how happy they are um, because they want to make a ton of cash. They want to kind of get more money out of them. But Mac uh, ends up loving the place. So That's the kind of second bacon switch. So it's like a, it's a film that kind of just upends expectations. Um, so yeah, it's kind of just a really kind of warm humanistic film, but. But what I kept is it's not sentimental. I think a lot of people have called it sentimental over the years, but I think the reason it's stood the test of time is because it's got kind of spikiness to it. You know, it's uh, similar to Whiskey Galore in that way. It's a kind of it's about kind of Scottish people, but they aren't kind of sh shown as being parochial. They're actually quite canny. They're quite urbane. They're cynical, um, and it's the outsiders who are actually the joke. Um, but yeah, but it's but it's got a warm heart, you know. But it's kind of kind of got bleak undertones as well. Like I think. Uh, you know, it's a part we're old film. Maybe we could say that Mac doesn't get everything he wants. You know, he is a hero, but he's not doesn't have a hero journey in the film. He he ends the film, um, you know, kind of back in his soulless penthouse in Texas with a few seashells from his time in this beautiful village. Um, yeah, so it's, it's like a it's an interesting film that people remember as being really heartwarming and sweet, but actually it's got kind of quite a quite a sad slightly ambiguous ending i think i think um, that the like the reason that it's remembered 
like that and why we generally regard it as quite a heartwarming film when in fact sometimes you realize it's not is because the company is just so good the company of the film like the characters are so weird and specific and they're definitely not tropes or archetypes you've got mac who's not even really scottish and and sort of doesn't really wants to be doing this entire thing over the phone and his like boss is Burt Lancaster, who is hiring this therapist to just come in and insult him to his face. And then, you know, their their characters are fleshed out beyond the necessary amount of detail. Like, there's these micro, micro scenes where they're just skimming stones or it's two misdated drives. They just have to sleep in the car and share a bar of chocolate. And it's just like, you know, it's a very brief interaction, but then we just move on. And without even realizing it, the characters are being built up in such subtle ways. It's so gradual. And not even like our main characters, but the townsfolk are built up in that same way. Like, they're kind of their own character. They're like a Greek chorus. They're, they're hiding behind the corners, trying to eavesdrop on the business transaction. There's like a hundred people like ducking behind one window just to listen to it. So you're really warm to them. Um, and like the natural world as well. There's this marine biologist who sort of, you know has like webbed feet and that turns out to just be this weird sort of miraculous thing that implies that it like gives the natural world world a lot of character as well but yeah it's just these sort of like very discordant and unexpected scenes where you don't even realize that you're actually forming quite a strong attachment to these characters and by the time that it comes in with its cynical ending at least when i'm watching it i always kind of like hope that it doesn't end that way i kind of like don't want it to end that way i want it to end happier well, I mean, when I say it, it's, the thing is, it's quite ambiguous because it ends with like it's got the, one of the most famous endings in British cinema. It's like ends with that famous red phone ringing, but we don't mm-hmm. see anyone pick up. And it's will someone pick up? Will he? You know, like what's going to happen? Um, you know, maybe he is stuck in Texas. Maybe he quits his job. You know, like it's like it's it's like, are you the half glass full, half glass empty guy? But yeah, no, I agree. I, I think I think you're right. The characters. I I love uh, uh, Dennis Lawson as the kind of Randy. Um, uh, <laughs> pub owner, but also the accountant, but also the, the yeah. mayor of the town, who's always like sneaking away to like you know have sex with his wife because they love <laughs> her so much. Like it's just yeah, like uh, again, it's like characters you, who you don't really see in Scottish films, you know. Anna, do you have anything to say about Local Hero? Um, I watched it two years ago at the GFT, um, which is actually a really nice way to see it. So I do encourage people to watch it at the cinema because it is really pretty on the big screen. Um, I can't remember all that much about it except. Have you guys seen Oscar? <laughs> the 1991, it's like a screwball comedy with like Sylvester Stallone and Marissa Tomei <laughs> and Tim Curry. <laughs> this is this ringing me No, else. no. I am conscious of time, but do tell me more. <laughs> it's, I'm not going to really. It's basically, okay. Sylvester Stallone plays like an ex-mobster, like mafia guy who his father's dying wishes that he turns straight. So it's like a day in his life when he's trying to like, turn straight and it got like nominated for Razzies and stuff but it's actually really funny and we used to watch it a lot as a kid because my dad really liked it um anyway Peter how do you say his name Peter Riggett yes Peter Riggett he was in that as his like right hand man who is now turned into a butler and as a child like kind of eight years old I was always like I think he's quite hot but then I was like is that weird and then I saw Local Hero and I was like no he is hot is this another uh, sexual <laughs> record <laughs> film of yours yeah. <laughs> Just you watching. Was it your dad who made you watch this a lot, or was it you? This is Zorro on repeat. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I really liked it. Anyway, that's my thoughts on local hero. So that's hero. local hero covered. Um, <laughs> P- Peter Capaldi is absolutely fantastic as this like big flailing lump. I just, I just don't think he's that tall. 
I didn't. Yeah, think he, was that he like he's cutting around the the stone beach in his like tweed suit, and he like wobbles wildly on every single step he takes. He reminds me so much of Jimmy Pesto Jr. from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Big flailing limbs, weird run, incredibly awkward, incredibly honest, and also I could write a whole. I could do a whole podcast on Bart Lancaster's character of uh, Happer, the weird astrology obsessed oil baron. <laughs> top billing in the film despite the fact he's in it for about five minutes and comes along at the end and completely like just takes over he's to want to talk about capitalism you know about the, the guy who runs the company just comes in and is like i don't like this idea we're going to do my idea instead <laughs> <laughs> and at one point and like in these five minutes still manages to find time to turn away for a, a noticeable amount of time then turn back to, turn back to mac and basically say why haven't you fucked off yet? <laughs> yeah. no i think it's a great film i think Actually, its legacy has been pretty grim because I think so many terrible films about Scotland have been made inspired by local hero. Um, one that comes to mind is that terrible Netflix Christmas film, A Castle for Christmas. You know that there's so many films about like Americans coming to uh, Scotland and sort of like falling in love with it. There's also that terrible um, film, Scottish Muscle, as well, which is also a similar vibe. It's set in a kind of Scottish village. So. Great film, but inspired really bad films, I think. Great film, but a lot to answer for. So, Local Hero is, like I say, back in cinemas from Friday. Uh, GFT, Dominion, and Cameo have it, and it'll be doing the rounds for a while after that. So that is Local Hero, a banger. As Anahit said, catch it in the cinema if you haven't seen it before. So Local Hero is about a city slicker from the big time moving to a rural setting in the kind of like twist on your archetype of a naive bumpkin getting steamrolled by urban life. But city boys don't know everything. They can't till a field. They can't negotiate complex community rituals, uh, at least not until they learn something about themselves. So, and Lewis just looked at me completely stony faced. <laughs> so, we're going to talk about more films in this vein, where someone from the big city moves to a small town and what kind of happens and like why these films are so interesting. Maybe we'll start with one that is quite literally about big city folk who can't till a field to save themselves. Uh, our Daily Bread which Jamie described as a heartwarming tale of the Great Depression earlier, so let's see where he goes from there. <laughs> did I describe it as that? I'm not sure. I, I believe you did. I don't think the mics are on, but I heard it. <laughs> it, is quite, it is quite heartwarming, though. What I love about this subgenre is it's, it's very anti-capitalist. You know, that's, that's the message that usually comes from these um, films, because it's usually suggestions that, you know, country people are kinder, they're less materialistic, they have a simpler way of life that's preferable to the rat race. Now, as someone who comes from a small town, I'm not sure I buy that premise. I think small town life is actually horrible. But um, but in our daily bread, I'm almost sold on it. It's uh, from King Vador, who I think has possibly the best and coolest name in all of Hollywood. Um, but he's a kind of forgotten uh, Hollywood filmmaker. Um, but uh, his films are really terrific. And one of his most offbeat ones is Our Daily Bread, um, which belongs to that really interesting era of American films in the 30s which were made during the Great Depression, but just before World War II, which have a kind of real kind of strong socialist ideal at the heart of them. Um, and you don't obviously find that in American films post-World um, War for many reasons. Um, so, so it's a really interesting time for American film, I think, and there's lots of really great films come out uh, of that era. Um, so basically this is a plot about a couple from New York who are completely broke, uh, it's the Great Depression. Um, they're about to be evicted from their apartment um, when they're given a reprieve when um, a rich uncle who owns this abandoned farm um, in the Dust Bowl um, area um, and they've decided, okay, what's the worst that can happen? We'll go and live here. At least it's rent-free. Um, they try to be farmers. They can't do it because they're useless. They're city folk who have no skills. Um, uh, they, they try and fix up the place because it's fallen apart, but they have no DIY skills, no construction skills. 
Um, but what happens is they meet on the road this Swedish guy who has came over to America looking for um, uh, you know success. Uh, but obviously the Great Depression is happening and he's starving and they take him in and lo and behold he helps them tend the, tr- the crops and then they bring in other people like carpenters and people who can tend livestock and they find a doctor and eventually the place turns into this little commune and eventually everyone's helping each other and they basically create this kind of like socialist utopia um, uh, before socialism was a bad word in America. So it's kind of brimming with hope and enthusiasm and it has these kind of great cinematic sequences um, and it has I think one of my favourite sequences in all American film where it climaxes on this sequence where the farm is in danger. Um, there's been another like dust bulb storm and the crops are about to die because there's no there's a drought um, and the nearest river is like five miles away and they don't know what's going to happen and the, I honestly when I describe what happens the last half hour of the film is a bunch of people building a ditch and it's the most nail biting <laughs> 30 minutes of cinema you'll find from the 30s so it's like yeah so it's like dramatic you know people building a ditch it becomes high drama um, and it's all about just unity and community and solidarity and yeah and, and before Americans became crazy and scared of like communism and Russia and like lost their mind um, and became like capitalist pigs so uh, yeah it was, it was a great time in America and it's a great film and you can find it on YouTube uh, I believe for free Excellent. Before the Americans became pigs. Um, these kind of films, I think, are, well, I, I think they're often about adaptation. They're about a character coming from one situation and into another, but they're coming into it with the assumption that their way of doing things is the best way of doing things and that you, as a bumpkin, could never understand. I think that Wicker Man is basically a local hero if the guy never gets on board with the locals and decides, <laughs> to, re- decides to reject their customs instead of like having a whiskey and hanging out. Um, but... Lewis, one character in a film like this, uh, who really does have to adapt, and he gets plenty of shots at it, mm-hmm. uh, is whatever Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day is called, because it's completely slipped my mind. It's Phil Connors. Phil Connors. He shares the name with the Groundhog, Puxatawney Pux- Phil. Ah. But um, yeah, I mean that's as you said, Jamie. Like these films are, you, they usually have quite like a strong anti-capitalist vibe. This isn't one of them, but he definitely. You know, Bill Murray is at odds with these small town people. He calls them hicks. But it still becomes my favorite, like, cynical city slicker has his heart warmed film. Uh, not because it's the cynical city slicker that's so well developed, but the entire point of the film that this is that Puxatawney could be any and every small town, right? So it's like, they by having, if you don't know the plot, the day repeat itself over and over. It's kind of a time loop thing. It's this kind of temporal way of addressing what we typically think of as more of a space right it's like uh they're giving a real definition to what it feels like to live in this small town it's groundhog day it's this seemingly inconsequential ceremony that's practiced exclusively in small towns you're going to see the same people do the same things every single day and then when you realize that nothing you do whether it's punching Stephen Tobolowsky in the face or driving off a cliff that nothing's going to change the fact that you're stuck here then you become incredibly depressed but it only becomes bearable when you kind of accept what's around you. Like the the people around you are not just sort of parroting the same things. They're not just like broken records, but they are human beings and they do react to what you say. They respond to what you have to say. Um, Not to mention it also jump-started the narrative trope of time loop, which was like a trope that then became a genre in like Palm Springs and, and Russian Doll that have like tried to reinvent it really. But I just think it's a really, really clever way of, of, exploring uh, you know i think that 
it's a film for jerks, right? It's a film to like kind of teach you how to just like be a better, more well-rounded person. Even if by the end of it, Bill Murray still kind of is a bit cynical. Like he's not overly sentimental, but he's definitely improved himself. And I think that's why, you know, the uh, screenwriters say they still get letters from this from like religious leaders and philosophers and psychologists about the sort of hidden spirituality of this film. And it's because people who live in small towns, like you say, Jamie, I'm not, I came from a bit a small town and I'm not a small town fan, but there's all, it kind of well captures the methods that you have to employ to deal with it and just sort of like open your heart to the people around you and not just think that everyone around you is a hick. Yeah, it's also got one of my favourite last lines ever as well. So, like, again, it's like, the idea is, like, Bill Murray's came around, he, he's learnt to love the place, he's learnt piano, he's, like, he's, you know, he's became a better man, he's, he's going to marry Andy McDowell, and they're walking out, and he says, let's move here, let's move here. Oh, maybe we'll rent. You know, it's like, <laughs> it just ends on that, like, maybe, yeah. I'll... Which I, I'm pretty sure was a Bill Murray ad-lib. Probably. Um, I, I typically disagree with like comedy uh, comedy critics about Bill Murray worship. I don't think that he deserves half the praise that he gets. And he's obviously like this very volatile person. He massively fought with the director over this film. He was not happy with how it turned out. He wanted it to go completely differently. But that's why the film kind of works is because, you know, I think that they originally considered Tom Hanks, but that wouldn't have worked because we'd have seen it coming a mile away because Tom Hanks is such a sort of gentle hearted, like nice guy. Whereas Bill Murray actually is that much of a dick in real life. These kind of films are often films about like, about disturbance as well, about like something or someone coming into a situation and sort of like upsetting the apple car. And they work in these kind of small time ways because there are communities that were small enough to hold themselves in stasis before, but now they aren't. So like blue velvet, Waiting for Guffman, the Christopher Guest one, about the, it's like about an amateur dramatic society, but they have, they sort of get two goes at it because they get this guy who moves from like the big city who's their like flamboyant dance and singing instructor. And then they hear that a Broadway like casting agent is going to come and see their play. So then they all start freaking out. Uh, Fargo is another example where it's like small town to even smaller town when uh, William H. Macy goes up the road to try and get some people to kidnap his wife and it goes about as well as you would expect and then like the smallest small town cop the one c who was not b francis mcdormand <laughs> pregnant as all shit turns up and just starts like is like spewing at the side of the road with morning sickness but also catching baddies um but sometimes the thing that disturbs sometimes the disturbing sound you can hear in the distance is the sound of romance <laughs> as it is jesus as it a hey, that was written down you had fair warning was it anahe you wanted to talk about Runaway Bride. Yeah, I there fucking love Runaway Bride so <laughs> much. It is like one of my comfort films. So it is a 90s romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, which I think was capitalizing on the success of Pretty Woman um, by putting them together again. Um, but I just think the vibes are better. Whoa, someone dropped something. Okay, well, whatever. Um, I think the vibes are better. Um, like it's just, the stakes are much lower. It's just like a lot cozier. Everyone's having a better time. It's basically about like this, a big city reporter who works for like, I don't know, the fucking New York Times or something. Um, and he has a column and one day a drunk guy in a bar tells him about a woman who keeps like leaving marriages. Like she's run away from like three kind of left guys at the altar. And he writes about it and it's Julia Roberts. And then she gets pissed, gets him fired. And he decides to go to her small town to like reveal the truth and that'll get his job back. And obviously they fall in love. It is 
absolutely fucking deranged in the way that the best romantic comedies are, I do actually think political correctness has gone too far. Cause like you have to have a toxic dynamic in a romantic comedy. Modern romantic comedies where it's like everyone's communicating just don't work. Cause actually everyone needs to be like awful to each other. You need to be like, you people should not be talking. Yeah, how does, I, how would, yeah. yeah. Did you read that interview with Hannah Gadsby? No. Where, where she was saying, I don't like romantic comedies because if they just talk to each other, they'd work it out. That's the whole point. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> Like they're meant to not talk. They're, they're meant, meant to, to be stupid, dumb bitches. <laughs> I'd have to say this war film would be better if everyone just got along. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it just yeah really follows in the tradition of the best. Like Only You is another one of my favorite '90s rom coms, where it's like these people are not well. Like they shouldn't be talking to each other, and that's what makes it so good. Um, it's also a really great depiction of journalism in the 1990s, and that this man has a salary. He is just writing a column and he has a salary and, you know, has a room full of journalists. I think we could actively laugh What's at that. What's a salary? What is a salary? I mean, to be fair, we it's are also salaried. Yeah, it's <laughs> but it's not the same. Is Richard Gere basically gender swapped Carrie Bradshaw? Yes, it is exactly that. <laughs> right now I'm on board. Where he just writes things and you're like, why, why are you making a living from this? But it's so funny because like his editor is like his ex-wife who is now married to Hector Elizondo, who is his best friend. It's all just like silly and fun. Um, but I think it like, yeah, like you're saying, kind of that idea of romance is disruption. It does kind of also contain the core of this trope, which I think is very often like cynicism versus like idealism or optimism or like kind of this romanticism. Um, yeah, like this kind of idea that the world has nothing to offer. Like this man is so jaded. He has been so, like he's the most divorced man on the planet. And then he like comes to this town, he falls in love with this girl in like six days. And there's something that's just quite like, yeah, like reformative about that, that feels like hopeful. And I think that is what this kind of like genre, subgenre does. Um, their chemistry is also off the fucking charts. And it's just like one of those films that is like just so textured, like the little lines and the little moments between them are just so like, yeah, they feel iconic. And that's such a silly word to use, but like her little plaid shirts and the little like banter and the little silly bits. Um, I think the best rom-coms they function because those things feel like they have meaning because they sell you on that idea. Like when you fancy someone and like the tiny little things they do, that's like the moment you replay in your head. Um, it feels like that in a film. Um, like it's not good, <laughs> but it is great. <laughs> and I love it so much. So we've got, we've got ditch digging, a very rude man and a film which is not good. I actually genuinely think it is good, okay. but people hate it. I think it's really charming. Like, it's very, like, the platonic ideal of romantic comedy in that it's safe, but it does what it does, I think, so well. Actually, no, for the first hour... Oh, no, it's actually quite long. The first two-thirds of it are perfect, and then the last third is a bit like, okay, come on. And that's actually what stops it being, like, great. But it is, until then. I, I just really like it. Have you guys seen it? I actually haven't. I oh, know. it's so nice. It's nice. I, mean, I, I do. Recommend. I do love Julia Roberts. Yeah, she's, she's like the. To me, she is the queen of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, better than Pretty Woman in that I actually think it's less problematic and it's laughing at itself more. I think than Pretty Woman does. Like the power dynamic in Pretty Woman sometimes does feel quite grim, whereas this, it's like, why are you two considering getting married after like three days? Like, why? What are you? What, what is, is happening? This here? is foolishness. Yeah, stop, yeah, yeah. Stop it. Exactly. Stop it, Harry Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> is it as great as my best friend's wedding though? 
I actually don't like that film. Oh my god, that's my favorite. Really? Yeah. But she's aw- he's awful. They're all awful. That's who's awful in that. Yeah, her fucking best friend. He's horrible. Like he's in love with her, and then like fucking dragging Cameron D. Oh my god, I hate, I hate that man. I hate that man. There's a lot of people don't come off particularly well in my best friend's wedding. No. But that city, that city on city violence. Yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what we're here to discuss. <laughs> So anyway, I'll just do it. I'll do an outro, then we can be finished. <laughs> because you mean we're, this isn't we're outro? Still on. Um, okay, so that was a good episode. I think that went well, despite my minor stresses at not knowing how any of the equipment works. Uh, so thank you, Jamie. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Louis. Thank you. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you. I thought you were saying thank you to the other Jamie. Oh, uh, thank right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how are we going to fix this? You need to, ch- you need to call us Jamie 1 and Jamie 2. Okay, thank you, Jamie 2. <laughs> what yes. I'm the original Jamie. <laughs> you set me but up for we, that. One. If we lose Jamie one, then can you fix up the sound? I mean, hardware? No. I have no, no clue. What's you going really on. set me up for that one. I'm, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Oh, I feel really bad now. Oh, what do you know? It's passed. Um, okay. So thank you, Jamie. Done. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Uh, we will be back in three weeks, actually, um, because we have got a kind of weird production schedule fallow week situation. So the next one will be in three weeks, which means that this is actually the last warning you'll get about Magista Deluxe. Summer Hall and CCA, 6th and 7th of June. Free tickets at theskinny.co.uk slash tickets. And yep, we are done. You can get us on socials. We are finished. Okay, bye, bye, everybody. Bye. 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 bye.